I think for many of us, particularly if you didn't grow up in a Roman Catholic or, or Anglican or Lutheran tradition, Lent seems like uh, it's hard to understand why you could enjoy it. I mean, after all, most of the church seasons are ones that's much easier to figure out. Easter time, who doesn't like little bunnies and chocolate eggs and all of that stuff? Of course, uh, when we celebrate Christmas, wonderful. Or I particularly love uh, Epiphany, where we get to celebrate the coming of the wise men, and I love having our little Epiphany party at my house where we mark the, the door with the blessing of the house. All those things are things that evidently, or I mean almost self-evidently, have really good news attached to them. I think for many of us, though, Lent seems not like a thing to celebrate or enjoy or appreciate. It's something to get through, to grit your teeth until finally it's over. Sort of like visiting the dentist or something like that. I'd like to speak to you today based on the, the lesson from the gospel about Jesus' temptation in the desert. This is the template for Lent and, and how it is that the church came to celebrate it. Why Lent is in fact a life-giving thing and how it is that it points us to the nature of Christian discipleship 365 days a year. It is not meant simply to imprint upon us what Lent is about. It's meant also to imprint upon us what it means to walk with Jesus all of our lives. As we begin, I'd like to make a few points about this passage, Luke chapter 4. But the first one is a brief one, but I think really important. The first point I wanted to make about this passage is, it reminds us the temptation is going to happen to us all. It's part of what it means to be human, even if, like Jesus, you are a perfect human. That's important for us to understand because sometimes I think that during the Lenten period where we're asked to, to look inside of ourselves and to repent of certain things, it can, in fact, be something we believe that when we're tempted, it indicates that we have a bad character or there's something wrong with us. I mean, after all, how many times does it happen in life where we find ourselves tempted by something to know it's not good, but we wonder, why does this thing sink its teeth into us? Maybe you've had the experience of addiction, and so things like alcohol can be like that. Like, why is it that I feel so drawn to this? Or there may be other things. Maybe you find yourself uh, attracted to a new coworker or something. You think, I love my spouse, but I don't know why this keeps happening. You know, when we look at this passage, it's really important for us to understand that Jesus is not tempted because he's got some giant flaw inside of himself. In fact, Luke in his gospel underlines really heavily that this is absolutely not because of a lack in Jesus, but instead is something that comes part and parcel to Jesus following God's will. The passage we just read uh, in Luke's gospel about Jesus' temptation happens after a, a well-known event when Jesus begins his public ministry. Luke talks about his childhood, but then after the childhood, he fast-forwards, and the very next thing you see in Jesus' life is Jesus coming to be baptized. And if you remember that story, you remember that Jesus comes out of the water and a voice, the Father in heaven says, this is my son, my beloved. I'm well pleased in him. And at the same time, the Holy Spirit comes like a dove and anoints Jesus. Nothing could be more clear to everyone there and what we read that this is someone God favors and says, you are someone I am deeply proud of. The very next passage after that, we hear, what I just read, chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Do you get that? The Holy Spirit anoints Jesus and Father says, this is my beloved Son, and instead of, oh, but Jesus tripped up, the Holy Spirit left and he ended up in temptation, it's 
full of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is full of God's Spirit, and that same Spirit is the one who leads him into the desert. Now, God doesn't tempt people. He's not being tempted by God. He is doing something he needs to do, but because God brings him to the place where he needs to do something, temptation comes along by virtue of the fact that the world and the flesh and the devil bring these things across his path. And that's the same thing with us. You know that part in the Lord's Prayer we say every Sunday, and maybe you say it in your own personal prayer life, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It can be confusing because you think, well, of course God's not going to lead me into temptation. God's not going to tempt me anywhere. What it's really asking is, is to say, God, when you lead me to where I need to go, don't lead me into a place where the temptation is too strong for me to resist. In other words, temptation often happens when we're on the right path and doing the right things. It can leap out and attack us. Yes, we need to defend against it, but it's not an indication that God's abandoned you, that he doesn't love you, or that he thinks poorly of you. Now, that's a brief point to make, but it's really important because particularly in Lent when we talk about repentance, it can be very tempting to beat yourself up. Oh man, I'm terrible, I'm doing this. It's not what it's meant to be. So we struggle with repentance, and I'll talk about it a little bit in my last point. Remember, that the temptations we face in life are because you're human, not because you're a bad person. Second point. One of the things that we often struggle with in Lent is that on one level, of course, we understand what repentance is about. I'm really messing up on something, and i got to do something about it. And maybe you've already been thinking about it. Maybe you're thinking, you know what, I really have a hard time uh, keeping my temper uh, in control when people irritate me. Or, I'm holding on to grudges, or I grumble a lot, or I find myself gossiping, or, you know, things that you know, these things are wrong. And so you get it, and you sort of think, yeah, i got to deal with it. And of course, we all know that we can look in the mirror and say there's things that we should change. One of the things, however, that's difficult, I think, for many people to understand in Lent and during this period and lead up to Easter, that's easy to understand, as tough as it is to do. But what about all this self-denial business? And after all, if you've been around the church for a while or a liturgical church that celebrates Lent, you'll often have heard things like, well, what are you giving up for Lent? And sometimes it's silly, you know. Uh, I remember um, uh, hearing somebody say, well, you know, I always give up parsnips for Lent. And I think, oh, well, that's not much of a sacrifice. But of course, lots of other people will say things that really they value, like I'm giving up chocolate or desserts, or I'm giving up alcohol, or I'm giving up one thing or another. And sometimes, uh, you know, people may be giving up some of their time in order to spend more time with, with people who are in nursing homes or other things. And you can sort of think, okay, you're, you're really taking something on to help another person, but that's all this self-denial business. Sometimes it can actually take on that character and has sometimes in the church this idea that, oh, you know what, you're really a bad person, you should punish yourself, and God's really impressed. I think this passage points us instead to what that self-denial business is about, not just in Lent, but it's a pattern for the entire Christian life. Because what we see Jesus denying himself in each of these temptations the devil brings is not something bad. In fact, he is being tempted with something that is good. So why deny himself these things? Because the means and the timing are what's wrong. What Jesus is doing throughout these temptations is that Jesus is not saying these are bad things being offered. He's saying, no, I will wait until the time my father says and the means, my father says, before I get them. It is something where Jesus demonstrates self-denial in order to demonstrate for us patience and for us looking to where our true goods come from. They come from the hand of God. Now, I'll illustrate what I mean by that as we look at each of these temptations because they're highly instructive. What's the first thing that the devil tempts Jesus of? 
We hear in verse 2, Jesus ate nothing at all during those days, so that's 40 days, pretty hungry. And when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command the stone to become a loaf of bread. Do you notice there's nothing wrong with a loaf of bread? There's not even anything wrong with Jesus making bread miraculously. A few chapters on, Jesus does that very thing. Little boy brings his lunch of a couple of loaves and a couple of fishes, and Jesus says, bring them to me. And what does he do? He blesses them and miraculously feeds 5,000 people. In fact, so abundant, we're told, that 12 baskets of bread get collected afterwards. There's so much left over. Nothing wrong with it. So what is it that Jesus has a problem with? And the devil siles up to him. Is the devil saying, you really look uh, uh, famished, and I really want to help you out? He's not. What's the devil saying? He's saying, I know that the Father has sent you out in here to be tested for 40 days. you still got a couple hours left, but man, you're close to the finish line. I know God said wait two more hours, but why not just snap your fingers and get it now? Seems pretty logical, doesn't it? What does Jesus return by saying? It is written, one does not live by bread alone. What's more important? Bread is okay, nothing wrong with it. What's more important? I'm going to wait until God says for me to take it. Look at the next one. The devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, to you, I will give their glory and all this authority that has been given over to me and I give it to anyone I please. Jesus is supposed to get that authority, right? When we celebrate the Feast of the Ascension after Pentecost, we are told that after Jesus raises from the dead, he preaches and teaches, and then he ascends into heaven and we are told he is seated at the right hand of the Father. We uh, say that every time we say the creed. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. We talk about the authority Jesus has over the kingdoms. If you ever read the book of Revelation, which I know has lots of challenges to it, it proclaims Jesus, the Lamb of God, sits on the throne and people worship. Jesus is quite uh, able to get these things and God has promised that he will give them these things. So where's the problem? problem and the devil says all you've got to do is bow the knee worship me and you can have it all in an instant you know the problem the problem is jesus has been given a mission to receive these things only after he does what god asks him to do it's not just that these things are good and jesus should desire them that's not the problem the problem is the devil offers him a shortcut do it this way but all of that business about hanging out with tax collectors and sinners Without all that business of having the Pharisees dislike you and having all of the, the Romans uh, attack you and eventually uh, uh, crucify you and have people mock you while you're there and of having your friends leave you and that, that suffering, you can just skip right ahead to what you need to see and do. Jesus says in response, he says, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Who do I take orders from? All the things that are due to me, I am going to wait until God gives them to me. Not when you say that I need to have them, and not when my own desire needs to have them. The third, the devil takes him to Jerusalem and places him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up, that you will not dash your foot against the stone. Again, the devil's quoting the scriptures. He's quoting from Psalm 91, which we just uh, sung earlier this morning. What's wrong with that? You know what the devil does by bringing him to the temple as opposed to saying a pinnacle in Mount Everest where nobody will see? He says, look, if you throw yourself off here and the angels swoop in and they protect you, 
Everybody will know who you are. You don't have to make blind people see. You don't have to feed 5,000 people. You don't have to put up with all this incarnation business. And most of all, what you don't have to do, you don't have to throw yourself into trusting God by giving up your spirit on the cross, being buried in the tomb, and waiting three days before you rise. We all know, of course, people recognize Jesus for who he is only after the resurrection. Thomas, doubting Thomas, doesn't believe until after the resurrection, Jesus appears and Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Finally, he recognizes him for who he is. The devil says, wouldn't it make more sense to just do this and get it all done really quickly and don't worry about the patience you need and the suffering you need to get what God is going to give you. I'd like to suggest that that sounds awfully convenient for most of us who live in an age of tremendous convenience. Because one of the greatest things we struggle with is not that we don't have access to good things. One of the greatest things we have struggles with is are we willing to be patient and to wait for good things to come in the time that they should come? You know, one of the uh, things that people have often commented about this passage is how Jesus, throughout the, the New Testament, is described as the second Adam. St. Paul talks about him that way. The second Adam, they say, is because he is the ideal human being that Adam and Eve were supposed to be in the garden. That story in Genesis where God creates Adam and Eve, male and female creates them in the garden, and what do they do? You can have anything you want. Eat as much as you want. You have dominion over nature. There's that beautiful little story about Adam naming all the animals and all these things you can do. There's one thing you can't do. You can't eat this uh, food from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But other than that, everything you want. Adam fails. Jesus succeeds. Why does Adam and Eve fail? Adam and Eve fail not because this fruit isn't good. We're told it's delight to the eyes. What's wrong for wanting fruit? He doesn't fail because he wants... Uh, knowledge of good and evil. That's a good thing to have wisdom. In fact, in 1 Kings chapter 3, when Solomon becomes king and God visits him in a dream, God says, what can I give to you? Ask anything. And what Solomon says is, give me the wisdom to discern good and evil. It's almost the exact same phrase. And God, instead of saying you're banished, says, fantastic. I'm so glad you asked that instead of asking for riches. And he blesses Solomon richly. The problem with Adam and Eve's sin there is not because the things they were offered were bad. It's because they only took them on their terms and didn't wait for when God would give them. These are all things that Adam and Eve were supposed to have, but they were babies. They're like little babies having milk, demanding to have a steak. And God said, you're not ready for it, but they demand to take it anyway. Here's my point about Lent and self-denial. It teaches us to be patient to receive the things we need when God says we're ready for it and not when we just want it. It's one of the most important things, something just as trivial as food. Like how easy is it for me when I'm feeling anxious or troubled, I'm going to grab some potato chips or some cookies. So often I fall into those sorts of things, not because potato chips are bad or cookies are bad. These are things that I will guilt-free enjoy in Easter. The problem is, instead of thinking, when's an appropriate time for me to have a cookie? When's an appropriate time for me to enjoy some popcorn and watch a movie with my family? Instead, my desire says, take it now, and I do. Even more troubling, of course, in our culture today, that's always been a present. People are, are, are a threat to people throughout history. But in the present, what do we have? We have an instant gratification culture that struggles all the time with being patient or denying itself anything it wants. You know, I'm dating myself, but when I was a teenager... Uh, I used to have a fatter wallet than I have now. It's not because I made more money. 
Not that I make tons of it now. That's a reminder, please be generous when the collection plate comes here. <laughs> Do you know why it is? Because back when as a teenager I carried cash, and now that I'm, let's say, middle-aged, I have a piece of plastic that does everything cash did. You know the problem with that? That piece of plastic, I don't even have to do anything. I don't even have to have money enough in my account to make it work. If I feel like I don't want to wait and go home and make supper and do things economically, I can drive through. I don't even have to get out of my car. In fact, I don't even have to go to the drive through. I can now get my McDonald's app and I can go over there just before I get to McDonald's and park there and somebody, some teenager who uh, has maybe cash instead of a credit card, will bring me my meal. I don't even have to, to wave my visa over there because it's all in the app. I can instantly do that without any thought to whether it's the appropriate time. Do I have enough money? And, of course, in more serious ways, people do this all the time, myself included. The Bank of Canada regularly gives out uh, warnings and says the consumer debt levels Canadians have keeps rising and rising. And guess what? The low interest rates that we have now are not going to last forever. What do we do then? We don't want to be a patient people. One of the things that Lent does is it encourages us to be people of patience, to say, I am willing to work for something before I buy it, to be able to say, I'm willing to wait for the appropriate time to eat something. I'm willing to wait to the appropriate time to have a drink or to whatever it is that you're denying yourself. Not to say these are bad, but to say these good things have a time and a place. By willfully denying ourselves a good thing over these 40 days, it's meant to train us to wait for the appropriate time and let God discern in us when we should take a thing and when we're ready. It's a challenge, but Jesus models this, not because he's a sinner, but because he knows that the will of his Father is most important. This is the way God says for me to do it. This is how long I have to wait until I get it. Then that's what I'm going to do. And that is an encouragement for us in our self-denial during the Lenten period. Last thing that I wanted to share with you, and it's a note of really good news. Do you notice that throughout all of these temptations, that Jesus wins each time? Of course Jesus wins, we think. That's Jesus, right? But here is a foretaste of a greater victory that we'll have later. Jesus here, it doesn't seem like it phases him all that much. We don't get quite the inner torment and, and difficulty. Each time Jesus quotes scriptures back to the devil and says, no, I'm putting my trust in God, not in you. And so the devil flees from him. But here's what's really interesting about that passage and about Jesus' denial of the devil. It's how it ends, very ominously. Verse 13, when the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. Do you know the next time this guy shows up in the scriptures? When Judas agrees to betray Jesus and Satan enters into him. This temptation time when Jesus has victory is a foretaste of the greater struggle he will have at the cross, but it shows us that Jesus has the power and the will to be victorious under those circumstances. Think about the Garden of Gethsemane and how the scriptures tell us Jesus prayed and even uh, sweat drops of blood. There is inner turmoil. Do I have to do this? Jesus prays, Father, let this cup pass from me. He does not want to do it. He wants to take the route that the devil said. All you've got to do is throw yourself off this temple. That's easier. God will save you. Do I have to go through this crucifixion business? But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus struggles through this, but he shows in the smaller struggle that in the greater struggle he will be victorious. There's a really great scene in The Passion of the Christ, which came out several years ago, uh, and I haven't seen it since because it's a hard movie to watch, right? 
But there's some really great imagery, and one of them is, well, Jesus is praying, and it didn't show up in Scripture, but it's an image. Jesus is praying, and as he does, a serpent appears and starts wrapping itself around his feet while he's praying. It's a clear allusion to the garden when uh, Eve and Adam are tempted. It's also, I think, a pointing back to that time in the desert where the devil comes and tempts him. This is the same thing, but maximal, much more powerful and difficult. And then Jesus, after praying, he starts hearing the soldiers coming and Judas leading them. He stands up and he takes his heel and he crushes the head of that serpent. He went out the battle of will and then he goes and dies. He's raised and he's victorious in the way that God had mapped out for him. This is encouraging for us because the same Jesus who was victorious in the desert, the same Jesus who was victorious in the garden of Gethsemane and victorious over the grave is the Jesus who says, I pour out my spirit on you, humble followers of me. At Pentecost, the disciples who are frightened, who had denied Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes on them, the spirit of power and might transforms them so that they are victorious. Where uh, St. Peter, we're told, and John 21 had denied Jesus, Jesus says the day will come when you will be led a place you do not want to go. Why does Jesus say that? He said, you failed last time. There's going to come a time where the test comes and you will succeed. That is the promise Jesus gives to us. That when we resist temptations and we invite the Spirit of Christ to dwell in us, He, A, gives us the power over temptation. But the victories we have over our daily temptations are a foretaste of the final victory Jesus will give us. How grievous it is to stand at the grave of a loved one knowing that death has defeated them and will defeat us. That's what we hear on Ash Wednesday. You will return to dust. We look at this passage and the foretaste of the victory Jesus has and he says that just as in the first uh, pages of Genesis where God breathes his spirit into the dust and forms human being, the spirit of Christ will breathe back into this loved one, resurrect them on the last day. Why? Because we've been given a foretaste of the power of Christ that shows us the tremendous power he have on the last day to crush even death, the great enemy that none of us on our own can defeat. Why is this hopeful? Invite the Spirit of Christ to help you fight temptations, put your trust in Him. And each time you succeed, it will give you a greater taste of the great victory Christ will have at the end of time. Remember those three things as we enter the Lenten season. First, we're all tempted. It's going to happen. The question is not whether, but when. And make sure you turn to the Lord when it does and Jesus said, uh, and follow the model Jesus had. Secondly, remember that in the times of self-denial, it encourages us to put our faith in God and be patient and work according to his time and not ours. And then lastly, remember that in the temptations you face by inviting the spirit and power of Christ in you to defeat these little things, it gives you greater confidence for his defeat of the big thing that frightens us all, our final mortal end. Christ, through his power, has promised that our, our mortality will be exchanged for immortality, all because of his great love and his power and might. <laughs>